imagine what kind of life these Afghan kids come from. They are struggling to make the bare minimum out of life and, and sort of create the bare necessities for their families. And if they can make three, four, five hundred dollars a month in Iran, well, then they can also uh, withstand abuse from police, and from employers and the risk of being deported and the journey because they help their families survive. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Rebecca Frankel, FP's executive editor for print, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, where I'm joined in the studio by Paul McCleary, foreign policy's senior reporter covering the U.S. Defense Department and national security. We also have Suna Angle Rasmussen and Andrew Quilty on the line. Suna is a correspondent for The Guardian, splitting his time between Pakistan and Afghanistan, and one of the few remaining foreign reporters in the country. Andrew Quilty is a photojournalist who has, for the past four years, been based out of Kabul. And today we're talking about Afghanistan, more specifically about the feature story Suna and Andrew just published in the pages of FP, titled Afghanistan on the Edge, which details, among other things, their trip to the southwestern province of Nimruz, notorious for its lawlessness, a haven for smugglers, and the crossing point for migrants leaving the country. ER listeners, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments? You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. All right. Thanks, everyone, for being here today. Um, I'm very pleased that we're talking about this piece. It's long been in the works. Uh, Suna and Andrew have been reporting on this story for, I guess, over a year, um, which is which is a considerable amount of time. So your first trip to Nimruz, as I understand it, was in 2016. And Andrew, you just returned not that long ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but both your experiences and the people you encountered are very vividly captured in, in the writing of the piece and also the photographs. Uh, but it's a dangerous part of the country and one that sees very few, if any, foreign journalists. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were doing there? Well, uh, we got the idea, I think, uh, a long time ago. Both Andrew and I had uh, talked about going to Nimruz for a while um, because it was this place that was like difficult to get to, but but uh, but also seemed very fascinating. I mean, there are some provinces in Afghanistan that are very difficult to get to, and both because they're unsafe and because of lack of, of transportation and, and infrastructure. But Nimruz is one of those places that's also at the same time very very, very interesting and encapsulates a lot of, of the problems of Afghanistan, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get back to uh, in the conversation. And but I think it took us maybe, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but like maybe six months or a year since like from, from we, we began talking about Nimruz to we actually made it there, simply because there was no way of getting there except uh, driving, which is, is, is not possible for for people who look like us i think uh, it's just not safe <laughs> uh, so so we waited until um, one of the commercial airlines started flying again and you have to sort of have to go via herat out in, out in the western part of the country and you have to stay there for at least for, for the better part of a week uh, and flights get canceled all the time because of sandstorms and it, it is a difficult place to go to and you need sort of flexibility and time and to, to, to get there. Yeah, so, it, and and as you said, uh, Sunan, which you describe in Nimmer's in the piece this way, which you say it's a microcosm for what has gone wrong in the Afghan war and that the province's lawlessness is a testament to the Western-backed government's failure to assert authority and curtail rogue strongmen. I mean, what evidence of this were you actually seeing or experiencing once you, well, you both got there? 
as soon as you land in Nimrud, you have the sense of a place that's uh, almost completely out of government control. I mean, there, it's not a war raging as, as such, and, and the Taliban insurgency is actually not that uh, visible, at least, in Nimrud. So it's, it's more about just like a, a lawless place. Like there's, uh, there's criminal gangs, there's strongmen, and there are insurgents, and, and people who are on the government side are deeply involved in in smuggling uh, and, and in and in criminality, and a lot of the sort of the power structures in Nimruz run along tribal lines to an even greater extent than in, in other parts of the country. Um, so, so you don't really see a lot of government presence if you sort of hang out with people who are on the government side, as we did uh, from time to time. They will have guards around them, and you can sort of visibly see where the government is in the city because there will be like three four by fours driving down the street um and apart from that i mean it, it is a it is a place that's that i mean it's it's a smuggler's uh, haven in numerous both the province which is which is very large and very sparsely populated but also zaranj which is the the provincial uh, capital Mm-hmm. The the other invisible, I guess the the people in, in Zaranj and Nimroz would call it a threat, is uh, what's on the other side of the borders there. And Nimroz is, uh, you know, it's surrounded by kind of you might say nefarious uh, neighbours. With uh, they've got the, the very much uh, Taliban stronghold province of Helmand um, on one side, and then you've got uh, Pakistan to the south and, and Iran on the other side, and and all these neighbours are often. You know, blamed for well, not only the problems of Nimroz, but but the uh, country um, as a whole. Is Nimroz is this used as a route for uh, the Taliban as well? Uh, from what you've seen, to to kind of smuggle things in and out of the country, both for profit and kind of for for their own, uh, you know, for, for their own use in the war in the south. There. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's uh, used as smuggling of all kinds of things, of of weapons. And drugs, and both of those things are, are you know, uh, vital for the Taliban, uh, and of, of migrants, which which our piece is, is uh, I guess, mainly about. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is a main smuggling route, just because it is a, I mean, partly because it is a, it's a desert and it's 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 very difficult to control, and because it it is a, it is a convenient sort of border to use if you want to get into Pakistan and if you want to get further into Iran. I mean, that whole area in Baluchistan. Uh, there's both a Pakistani and Iranian and an Afghan Baluchistan, and that whole area is the control of mainly Baluch tribes and, and smugglers. And yeah, and you can smuggle whatever you want. And, and yeah, it definitely is an important place for the Taliban. That's it. So, so as you describe in the piece, uh, that the location that Andrew was saying it, uh, it corners right into Iran and Pakistan, and, and certainly the focus of the piece is about uh, the migrant population and and the lengths that these young men are willing to go to to get across the border into Iran. And certainly that journey is not an easy one. Can you tell us a little bit about what lengths people are willing to go to get from Afghanistan into Iran to find work? Um, yeah, I could answer that. I, I mean, on any given day in Zaranj, and, and this is um, the traffic coming uh, coming through Zaranj and Nimroz has slowed somewhat in comparison comparison to the, when there was the major um, outflow in, in 2015 heading towards Europe. But still, um, on any given day, now in 2017, you'll get, I mean, it's hard to know 
know exactly how many numbers are going, but the UN agencies down there are recording um, on most days around about a thousand uh, people being deported back from Iran. So it gives you an indication. I think it would be somewhere around the same number. And those people are coming from all over, all over Afghanistan. It's a very homogenous um, kind of cross section of, of the population that you find on the back of these. Um, pickup trucks heading out of Zaranj and um, making for the border with with Pakistan to head further west to Iran and m- mostly to Iran. But um, it's um, it's this bottleneck for um, for the rest of Afghanistan, and they all sort of funnel through through Zaranj. Um, most of them are able to get to there relatively safely by um, you know by bus or taxi. But from it's from Zaranj where the the journey gets really perilous, and um, you know within of uh, 10 or 20 miles of Zaranj, they're really heading into very harsh desert. The, the roads disappear under the sand. And um, as Suna writes about the the, the smugglers themselves, um, grow, knowing the area particularly well, having grown up, seem to be the only ones that can really navigate the area, um, which, you know, changes from day to day as the you know, sand dunes move move with the winds. Right. There's a there's a particularly um, compelling scene in the, the story where you describe being in one of these sandstorms and where the driver just turns to you and says, no, 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 don't worry. I know this. I could I could make this ride with the, my eyes closed, which, which sounds sort of impossible, but um, a harrowing moment, maybe. I don't know. You tell us. Yeah, you, you couldn't see anything. It was the sand was sort of sort of flowing down the windows and covering them like as if you were driving through mud. I mean, you couldn't see more than a meter ahead of you. Was, uh, but, yeah, but you knew exactly where we were going. It was pretty impressive. And this was like, like a two-and-a-half-hour drive into the desert. Not all of it was that bad, but sure. at least an hour, hour of it was that bad. So it was pretty impressive that he could find his way. Huh. But so, you know, you talk about this merciless train, and then the statistics cited in the piece say that, you know, in the first six months of 2017 alone, a total of 80, more than 80,000 Afghans fled abroad, and half of them were going into Iran. And so it's it's interesting because we in the piece does get into this and, and whatever you can tell us about why, but they get pushed out of Iran. Iran doesn't want them there or says they didn't want them there. You, you know, you talk about the border that's... Uh, and how there's a wall now built around the border, and yet people keep going. So if we're talking about what's happening in Afghanistan right now, and if Nimruz is a, a, an example or, or somehow representative of the bigger problems the country is facing after 16 years of war, or a stagnant economy, all of those things seem interrelated. But, you know, what is it about this dynamic between the two countries or what's happening inside Afghanistan itself that that makes this these sort of harrowing journeys either the only option or the only you know the best option taken. I think um, sooner you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Iran for a long time for you know probably since the 80s and the, the Soviet uh, war and, and the civil war that followed that has been you know, historically a very popular place for Afghans to go in search of work. The money they can earn there is, I think most people say it's you know it's about double what they can get here, and. Um, I think, um, I mean, particularly now as the, the econ- economy is plummeting and along with it um, employment, it's never been more um, more looked towards as a, um, as a kind of last-ditch option. And I, I, you see a lot of the people that are coming back, um, even after they've been, you know, uh, picked up by Iranian border guards or, or by, um, you know, Im- immigration authorities and 
handled pretty roughly and then and you know turfed back over the over the border with you know probably they've probably been relieved of their their belongings and their money along the way you know the moment they're crossed they're talking about you know their plans to to return because there simply isn't an alternative um, source of income for them in in Afghanistan and, and Iran um, despite the risks is um, does does have that and what are those risks? Because one person that you encountered is described in the piece is in pr- like pretty bad shape, right? And he's, I think he's still wearing his hospital gown. And that's exactly what he tells you is that he is going to go back the first chance he gets. This kid was a teenager and he'd, uh, he'd gone and like many young Afghan men do. They sort of go with the, their family's entire savings um, and the family invests in them to go on and, uh, and work abroad and also to be able to send money back, right? Families will pawn their land or they will postpone the other children's schooling or whatever just to get money enough to send one son to, to Iran to be to, to send home what is, for Afghan standards, a pretty healthy salary. But this kid had been shot on the crossing from Pakistan to Iran by by border guards. And, uh, and the bullet had sort of gone through his back and then and then out his stomach and he was still carrying his colostomy bag and was in, in the hospital gown and carrying x-rays. Uh, and he spent some time in an Iranian hospital and had basically been driven back to, to this bridge that separates Afghanistan from Iran in just outside the Zaranj, the provincial mm-hmm. capital, and then had and then I walked across once he was uh, fit enough to do that. And, and, and that's one of the dangers. I mean, there's, you can be shot by border guards. You can be uh, mugged by smugglers. You can, be, uh, you can be kidnapped by the Taliban. There's also stories about uh, Shias, ethnic uh, Hazaras, who are being, um, being held by the Taliban, kidnapped by the Taliban. And then once you get to Iran, there's a risk that, you know, authorities or police might... Uh, might abuse you. You're always at the risk of being deported because you, because if you go that way through Nimrud, you probably don't have papers and, and work permits. Uh, so even when they get to Iran, it's a pretty perilous life. And, but I think we also have to think about sort of you have to imagine what kind of life these Afghan kids come from. They are sort of struggling to make the bare minimum out of life and and sort of create the bare necessities for their for their families. And if they can make three, four, five hundred dollars a month in Iran, well, then they can also uh, withstand abuse from, from police and from employers and the risk of being deported and the journey uh, because they help their families survive, basically. Given how remote this, this border crossing is and how much effort uh, and money it takes for these Afghans to even get there, is there a sense that um, when some of these men are kicked out of Iran and, and they come back to, into Afghanistan that they're kind of stuck there, and their only choice is to try to go back to work to raise more money. Because uh, if you're, as you said, you know, relieved of your your money and your belongings and dumped on on the border, uh, they have no way to get home. I mean, they're probably hundreds or thousands of miles away from their homes, right? I mean, so is the really only choice? Do you think sometimes to go back and try to earn some money? Yeah, because also that is the only way left to, to make any money. I mean, maybe if the family had invested their small fortunes in something else, uh, maybe a shop or, I don't know, maybe try to get jobs somewhere in Afghanistan, maybe that, that would have worked. But if they don't have any money left, then the sons will have to go and try and make that money back. Uh, that's often the case, I think. It's also a matter of pride to, to a certain extent. That's what you also see when you have, when you, when you speak to people who have been deported from Europe, for example. I mean, it's, it's very shameful for a young 
uh, Afghan man to be uh, to, to have you know his family's eyes on him as he goes to Iran or goes to Europe to to try and make it and then be deported again. And I think that shame and that male pride also also plays in and also forces people to go back. I think. And there seems to be a certain irony that uh, these men leave. Afghanistan, a country so awash in opium and other drugs, and go to Iran and become drug addicts, and then come back over, right? I mean, there's NATO's attempts to eradicate the opium crops as is dried up. I mean, they, I don't think they even attempt to do that anymore. But they, but yet they go into another country and become addicts. Is that part of this hopeless back-and-forth existence that, that, that they're living? Um, yeah, I think once you're in Iran and, and, and you're working hard manual labor, life is tough and you don't have a lot of a lot of things to do in your spare time. I think uh, I think opium and then graduating later to to harder drugs is is a very uh, appealing thing to do for a lot of these young men. And that makes it even tougher to come back home, of course, because with the drug abuse among your colleagues at this uh, construction site in Iran also comes uh, some form of, of of community, right? That you didn't have necessarily back in Afghanistan. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, so yeah, I think that that helps pull people down, further down, and, and uh, of course, it also depletes the money that it was supposed to send back to their families. So this was an element of the the reporting and also a lot of the photography that Andrew did for this story that I didn't, I didn't, wasn't really aware of this, and it's not a lot of reporting I've seen elsewhere. You know, when you hear about Iran and Afghanistan, it's about how Iran is propping up the Taliban, but you don't hear about the crippling effect that this is having, and, it, and one of the most haunting uh, and powerful photos uh, in the series that Andrew has is of Inzerange in one of these stores that has sort of been taken over by addicts. They're, you know, abandoned um, and people are using them to do crystal meth or smoke opium. And and some of the more affecting quotes, too, were from, from these stories. And, and again, it's sort of what Paul was just saying, this sort of endless cycle that seems to be happening in this particular place. Um, Andrew and Tsuna, I know that when you were there the first time that that you encountered this community as well. But what was some of what you were seeing there? It was um, very, I mean, particular parts of uh, Zaranj, you know, right in the centre of of it. You know, maybe a block behind the the main traffic circle even was really um, heavily saturated with um, men. You know, predominantly men. There are also a few women. Um, but there were, you know, clearly addicts, uh, mostly smoking opium or, or other derivatives of, of opium. And, I mean, a, a lot of cities, a lot of capital cities around Afghanistan, in particular Kabul, there is um, large populations of, of addicts. And they're very much um, in these in these ghettos where, um, where they have this sense of community and maybe strength in numbers and they're... Um, there is a, a ready supply of the drugs that they need, um, and um, you know what, what's startling about th- that situation in in uh, Zaranj in Nimroz is the the percentage of those who have returned from Iran recently as addicts, and I mean that's the case in Kabul as well. But because of uh, its proximity to Iran, some of the drug addiction clinics that we visited down there. Um, were saying that anecdotally, probably seventy percent of the patients that they were treating had had returned from Iran as addicts. So it's yeah, like you say, it's quite um, like you say, Paul's um, the irony that they pick up this habit in Iran 
on on substances that are um, derived from Afghanistan is um, is pretty pronounced. And are most of the smugglers there? I mean, obviously on the Afghan side, they're uh, they're Afghans. I mean, what about the? I don't know how much visibility you had in, into the Iranian side or, or, or their the criminal networks over there. I mean, are they working with Afghan smugglers and criminal networks? Is there a lot of kind of bleeding over there? It is. Most of the smugglers are Baluch. Um, so they're from this region, which sort of uh, crosses all three borders, right? It's both uh, Pakistan and Iran and Afghanistan. So many, many of these, most of these smugglers are are Baluch. And, and that's that's a stronger commonality than necessarily nationality in this uh, in this respect, I think, uh, but yeah, so you can say there is some cooperation there, but uh, but that's because of uh, of tribe more than more than is like the cross uh, country thing. Got it. So if we just sort of shift things over a little bit um, to sort of broader conversation about Afghanistan, certainly it's or in the. I guess the pinwheel of the current administration's like dead pivots to different different policy changes. Um, Afghanistan has come up again uh, with Trump's announcement late this summer that we would be sending more troops over and also sort of changing the approach. And he outlined three pillars, and one of them was putting more pressure on Pakistan. The other was about responding to conditions on the ground as opposed to what he's called arbitrary timetables. But uh, as two of the sort of reduced forces and journalists on the ground in Kabul, um, and as two journalists who have been uh, in country for a long time, I'm curious to to know more about the Afghan response and just feelings about Trump in general. Um, Admittedly, I've been out of the country for the last couple of weeks, so I I didn't, uh, I wasn't aware of the immediate um, impact of that announcement here. But I would suggest that um, it, it was welcome largely but it's this uh, it's this strange dynamic here where afghans are aware that or afghans i should say that are in support of the government are aware that without the american support uh, they'd be in big trouble however at the same time in a more physical sense or a, um, a more immediate sense when americans are present on the ground in kabul for example they're eyed with a lot of suspicion you know particularly the the military driving around in their enormous armoured vehicles. So you've got this kind of abstract acceptance f- for the the necessity to have them here. But in practice, it, it's, it's somewhat different. Yeah, I, I got the same sense. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, the people who support the government, especially sort of talking about your average man on the street, uh, the vast majority, if you ask them, will be supportive of more American troops. But I th- you also have to think, or you also have to remember that when the American troops or the majority of them pulled out, there was a very quick and very direct cause and effect, and and uh, security deteriorated very quickly. Not just in the low provinces, but also around Kabul. And there's and Kabul has seen a lot more very big suicide attacks over the past uh, three years. So so that so it's, it's a natural uh, natural desire for many Afghans to want more foreign troops. I think um, if you sort of think it a little bit deeper. If, if you ask people whether it's going to help or not, or whether, whether you know, I would say it's going to help or not, it, that entirely depends on what these troops are going to do. And we don't know a lot about that so far. It seems like a lot of them are going to be uh, propping up the Afghan Air Force, which, you know, is probably a necessity if the Afghans are to to be uh, self-reliant further down the line. Um, but 
We've also seen over the past year, we've seen a, a pretty dramatic increase in both foreign but also Afghan airstrikes. And with it, we've seen a dramatic increase in, in civilian casualties from airstrikes. Um, and in fact, is that, that civilian casualties and sort of indiscriminate bombings of villages that sometimes go wrong, uh, they hit weddings, they hit the innocent women and children, that fuels the insurgency and it, and it very quickly sort of worsens the trust that people have in the, in the government. And long term, that's, that has proven to be very, very damaging for, for the government's ability to sort of assert any legitimacy, any, any sort of authority across the country. Yeah, I mean, from conversations I've had at the Pentagon, I mean, it seems that most of the U.S. troops coming in will be trainers. Uh, as you said, a lot of Air Force, they'll be working with uh, the Afghan National Army and police, kind of what they're, how they're doing it in, in Syria and uh, in, in Iraq and Somalia <laughs> currently. Um, uh, I think there's going to be a few artillery units coming in. I think they're going to try to backstop some of the Afghan Air Force while they, they keep training those guys up and training more Afghan JTACs will be on the ground calling in airstrikes. Um, so yeah, I don't know how much the average Afghan uh, civilian in Kabul or in Helmand or other places or in the east will will see the American presence. Uh, it's going to be, you know, 4,000 troops, but um, I think they're kind of trying to double down on this training and, and, and support. I mean, I imagine there'll be a lot more American airstrikes, too coming up in the next few months, especially in the east and the south, um, as they try to at least hold the line of the Taliban. I don't know if they can, I don't know if they believe they can beat them back, but I think the plan is to at least hold the line for who knows how long. So yeah, I think, I think buying time and trying to hold the line is, is also the only realistic goal to have in Afghanistan at this point. And, uh, but, but when you say that, that a lot of the, the soldiers who come in are going to be trainers. That means that they're going to be part of the train advice and assist mission. And what that actually uh, constitutes, like training, advising, and assisting, is very vague. And, and uh, they do have a mandate to, in some, cir- uh, some uh, circumstances, uh, go into combat, for example, what is termed self-defense or in defense of Afghan troops. And when you speak to to commanders in Helmand, the American commanders, they are pretty uh, firm uh, when they say that some of these uh, mm. troops, the, the new Americans who come, will also engage in combat. Uh, and they've also received an extra battalion of uh, Marines who are, who are, you know, supposedly training Afghans, but they also, when they leave the perimeter with the Afghans, they are fully armed and they're ready to, to go into war. Um, so, so, it is true when they are part of the train advice and assist mission. It is different from being part of the counterterrorism mission, which also exists in Afghanistan. But it doesn't mean that they'll never get into combat. Exactly. Yeah, there's been instances where they've been in combat. And I mean, I know the Marines in Marja and Nawa over the past few months have been right there with the Afghans, you know, at, at the, uh, I guess, brigade level, you'd call it, you know, um, advising them and uh, I'm sure doing some other stuff. And Paul, you were just saying before we went live here that uh, you were having a, like a moment of deja vu. You're, you're reading a, a book about the troop surge nine years ago. Yeah, I picked up uh, to reread uh, Bob Woodward's Obama's Wars, uh, the book that came out in, I think, 2011 about oh, President Obama at the time in 2009 debating whether to surge troops into Afghanistan. Um, and the debates, uh, it's shocking actually to read. They're exactly the same saying, you know, Pakistan is, is the real issue. We need to take a regional perspective. We need to pressure the Pakistanis to do more on the border. Um, 
you know, the Iranians are a problem <laughs> flowing weapons to the Taliban. You know, we, we need to train the Afghans to professionalize their military. You know, they're, they're pretty close, but they just need a little more help. I mean, it's exactly the, the, the report that uh, Gen- General Lute gave to uh, President Bush uh, in the waiting days of his administration sound exactly like we're going to do now with taking a regional approach and, and prioritizing the relationship with Pakistan. So uh, very little seems to have changed in the uh, ensuing seven years. Because, um, again, we're talking about Pakistan, right? Yeah, it was a little worrying how um, how revolutionary um, President Trump seemed to think his um, his new so you know new inverted commas um, policy on on Afghanistan was because as, as anyone who like ourselves who has followed the the country uh, knows that it's it's yeah it's a mirror of as you say the the late two thousands. And so, Suna, so, you know, what is your take, and at least Trump's the doubling down on the Pakistan? I know that you are one foot uh, in Pakistan, one foot in Afghanistan in terms of the coverage you've you've been doing for The Guardian. Has that had any ripple effect? Is there people talking about this? Yeah, very much. In, in Pakistan, it was, it was uh, big news, and, and the Pakistanis are... Uh, as you could ex- as you would expect, you know, angry at the at, at this new American strategy. They're offended, I think, and it's actually it came at a time when when sort of Pakistan was was going through political turmoil with the disqualification of Prime Minister uh, Nawaz Sharif, and this news from America sort of seemed to to unite uh, a lot of people here because because they all agree that you know not not everyone but a lot of people agree that that. Pakistan is doing more to curb terrorism in in the region that they're than they're getting credit for. Uh, they feel that their concerns, it's in, for example, are not being taken seriously. And you know, and, and when they look at uh, at uh, the new Trump strategy, uh, there's very little in that to actually address those concerns. Uh, and then you, we can always uh, you know discuss whether or not Pakistan's concerns to India, uh, like how you know how serious a threat India posed to Pakistan, but that doesn't change the fact that the, the Pakistani establishment, that's that's what their entire foreign policy is, is based on, is, is uh, one-eyed in. So people are, are sort of angry, and, and you, you've you seen the reaction from here has been to turn away from the U.S. and sort of threatening at least to do a pivot to, to the East, to China, and, and also to a certain extent to Russia. And if that happens, I'm, I'm, I have to see that before I believe it. I think the U.S. is still a very vital partner to to Pakistan and vice versa. But but you know, if if China increasingly plays a, a dominant role in the region, that could that could also shift power balances. Also also uh, with relation to the insurgency in Afghanistan, I think. Yeah, and the leadership surrounding uh, President Trump. I mean, you have General McMaster, you have uh, Secretary of Defense James Madison, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Dunford. They were all part of the Afghan surge or, you know, I mean, McMaster was on the anti-corruption task force in Kabul for, I think, two years. Mattis was uh, head of CENTCOM during the Afghan surge. I mean, these, they're not coming to this without experience in the region. Uh, and yet, the, you know, it shows the, how tied in knots Washington is over the Afghan and Pakistan strategy that they're essentially trying to do mostly the same thing what they tried eight years ago and see if it, see if it has more success this time. It's also, you know, it, you have to address Pakistan if you want peace in, in Afghanistan. I don't think there's any way around it. Then the question is how to do that, right? And and I think that's what that's what uh, what 
Afghan presidents, both Karzai and, and Ashavrani, have done with not a lot of uh, luck, but and with uh, different methods. I think you need to address Pakistan somehow, get Pakistan on board, and do do more than they're doing now to curb uh, to curb terrorists and, and uh, crack down on terrorist havens. Um, but I think you also have to address some of Pakistan's concerns at the same time. I mean, I don't, I don't have a I don't have a, a good simple answer on how to do this. Uh, a lot of the people who are working in the Trump White House have a lot of experience, as you say. Um, and so does the current American commander in Afghanistan now, uh, John Nicholson. He's one of the most experienced generals when it comes to Afghanistan. Um, so, so it is a tricky one to solve, for sure. And then to help solve the problem, you would need a fully staffed and funded State Department as well, which uh, isn't the case at the moment. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think uh, I think you can't just... Like military power, we've, we know that. We've seen that for the past... 16 years, military might is not going to solve the Afghan conflict. So you need to also uh, increase your diplomatic presence and your diplomatic, I think it takes some diplomatic gambles in the region. But if you don't have the diplomatic muscles to do that, then it's it's very difficult. Sure. And and the numbers of troops they've been talking about are incredibly small. Uh, even, in a tra- even if it's a training capacity or a combat capacity, it's, you know... About 4,000. 4, a lot of those is... people are doing logistics and things like that, so yeah. the number that actually will be out in the field will be half of that, maybe. Right. Yeah, it's not much of a search. No. No, it's not. Um, Andrew, I saw that you had posted the piece on Facebook, and I won't share this person's name, but there was a comment from one of the Afghans that you interviewed and possibly worked with to, to do the story sort of saying thank you for shining a light on something that doesn't doesn't see a lot of um, exposure in terms of the broader narrative of Afghanistan and what's happening. Aside from, from being a positive personal anecdote, I I wonder if there's other corners of Afghanistan's or, or, or problems like Nimruz where the more attention paid, the better understood the overall problem is. I mean, Afghanistan as a whole, I think... Um sooner would agree is anyone here you know kind of uh, mourns the lack of um or the the constant decrease in, in attention it receives um but um i mean that's you know ever more so at the moment as um as the the provinces outside kabul become uh, less and less accessible and the uh, media organisations operating here are less and less um, open to uh, the risk of, of reporting from those places. So, um, yeah, I mean, turn it to your question, there's, there are, you know, several parts of the country that um, neither Sooner or I have been to and, and certainly haven't been visited by any foreign media uh, probably in several years since um, they were more accessible with uh, US US and international coalition embeds. Um, but yeah, there are very, I mean, even provinces quite close to Kabul, you know, within a, you know, 100 miles or so, even a almost entirely no-go zones um, nowadays, which which points to um, how dire the, the situation, the security situation is here. Um, but I suppose, like Nimrod's, the difficulty of access also makes it, uh, you know, more appealing as as a, a journalist um, and seeing what's there, and um, not not only um, to you know report, report from underreported places, but um, you know, I guess the curiosity that you develop for the the nuances between um, 
you know, the provinces or even, you know, from valley to valley or village to village in Afghanistan. It's, it's very diverse and um, it's something that having spent a few years here, you, you certainly begin to appreciate and, and uh, like to try and explore where possible. Yes. And certainly I feel like, uh, Suna, I think that you wrote about this too, but the recent error in uh, judgment of the military command, the leaflets that were dropped that had a, a an inscription on the, the side of a dog that were incredibly offensive people who were receiving them. Um, nuance like that uh, would be a good thing. Yeah. 16, yeah, 16 yeah. years in especially, you'd, you'd yeah. think that uh, yeah. things like that would be understood. Yeah, you sort of question where those cultural advisors were at the time. Uh, you know, like to the defense of the, uh, the, the American military, we need to say that they came out before anyone knew, I think, about the leaflets, uh, apart from the, the locals who received them. Before there was any media stories, they came out and apologized. And I think they were, I got the sense that they were furious, the people who, like they're sort of the superiors. But but it is amazing how that can how that can be approved, yeah, at least like that in 2017. Sure. Well, I think that's a good place for us to close the conversation. I'm I'm very glad we had it, and I appreciate you guys calling in from your uh, much later in the evening locations. Uh, yeah, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thanks, thanks, guys, and and again, uh, really good work, really great story. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Rebecca Frankel, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for joining us.